0: So for a second there, I couldn't figure out what Co- where Coakley was going with the humility and uh, Florida and Tennessee and all that. Um, I'm, I'm imagining that uh, Florida does get humbled uh, this uh, Saturday. But I also noticed, you know what, maybe there's just mutual respect that Coakley and I have for each other since I'm wearing Tennessee orange and he chose to wear Florida blue today. So I appreciate that mutual respect from, from my brother i um, love for you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1, and a couple of things I wanted to, to say and point out or encourage you with. The first is you'll notice in your schedule that October 19th, uh, we have a, a different topic than the book of John, the Gospel of John, and a different speaker than, than Barton, Todd, or George. Um, I've asked Sandy Wilson to come talk to us that week to do a special stand-alone stand amen, um, as you know, we're in the myth, middle of, a, uh, of another, unfortunately, crazy uh, election season, which um, we didn't do so well uh, as a country and even as Christians uh, in the previous two, um, and we need, to, we need to do better as far as the way we handle um, our thoughts, opinions, our conversations with each other, the differences that we have. And I thought, you know, probably the only person who could get by with saying whatever he wants to would be Sandy Wilson. So <laughs> he's going to be here uh, October 19th. And I asked him if he would uh, if he would teach out of Titus chapter three. He's excited about that. I say that because two things. One, I don't want you to miss it. Uh, so go ahead and mark that and make sure you're you're set your alarm. You're here 2 we're going to open it up to anybody who who wants us to uh, try out. Amen. That that particular um, that particular Thursday. So those of you who staked out your tables, you might want to get here a little early just in case people that don't know any better sit at your table. Um, The other thing is, as we're going through this study, I would really encourage you uh, to do at least one thing and that is to look ahead uh, each week. I know some of you do this already, but to look ahead and take some time during the week to read the passage that we're gonna study on Thursday ahead of time and do it contemplatively. Don't do it just to read through it. But, but put yourself in a place where um, you, you're, you have some undistracted time. It probably only will take you 30 minutes max. Maybe it's in the morning. Maybe it's a part of your regular uh, devotions with the Lord. But to take the chapter or the passage that we're going to be looking at, to sit down and to slowly read through it. And uh, I, I like writing. Uh, in my Bible, underlining certain things. Other of, you's, others of you don't like to do that. So maybe you grab a piece of paper or your notebook, and you're just jotting down some things, some phrases that you go, well, that, that really hit me. I really love that phrase, or this means a lot to me, or questions that you write those down. So that when you get to here Thursday morning, you're not hitting that, you're not hitting the topic fresh, right? You're not coming in with no clue With what we're doing, instead you're coming in having thought about it a little bit. So then, whatever's being taught, whatever we'll be looking at, is just going to enhance and feed into what you're doing uh, personally and devotionally. I really encourage you with those two things. The question I've uh, been—you see it on the top—do you want to see God? But the question I've been thinking about all week that I would love to ask each one of you, uh, and I can't because it would take too much time. But I'm going to ask you all generally: Is this? What do you really want? What do you really want? What would satisfy you right now? What would make you content? All right, now answer quickly. In fact, you can just, I don't need you to share with anybody, but write down. Write down. what The first thing that came to mind when I said, what do you really want? Write it down. All right, log it. You can put it in code if you don't want anybody to know because you're You're unsure about that, whatever it is. What is it you really want? What came to your mind when I said, what do you really want? What came to your mind when you said, when I said, what would satisfy? What would make you content right now? When I was in high school, went to a private school down in Florida, go Gators. And uh, that private school actually had a real chapel. Uh, So we didn't go to chapel in a gym. We actually had on campus a real building that was just for chapel. And on the back wall of that chapel was written uh, John 10, 10. John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to tell you what any chapel speaker said in any of the three and a half years I was at that school. Um, but I will never forget staring at that phrase behind the speaker and thinking As a junior in high school, senior in high school, that's what I want. I really want life to the full. And when I thought about wanting life to the full at that time, and and honestly for several years later, my idea of life to the full was I want Jesus to give me these things. I had a list in my head of what would satisfy me, what what blessings I wanted from God. And when I thought of life to the full, I thought of a life where Christ would bless me in such a way that these, some of those things were relational. Some of those things were material. Almost all of them, I think all of them were earthly. I wanted them, I wanted those things now. Um, I'm not sure that too many of them were spiritual. I felt like it was spiritual enough (laughs) that I was asking Christ for these things. Life to the full. Barton last week, showed us, some of you know this, uh, the theme verse or the key verse or the the purpose verse of the Gospel of John. What is that? Anybody want to yell it out? What verse? You don't have to memorize the verse. Just tell me where it's found. Yes, John 20. Good job, y'all. John 20, verse 31, where John says, these things I have written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in His name. And as Bart and I were thinking about this series and what we wanted out of it most for ourselves personally and for all of you, I couldn't help but think constantly of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. When after he says, this is all the stuff that if you want to, he says, you want to hear about boasting? You want to, you do want to know about righteousness? You want to know about somebody who has status? Let me tell you about all the stuff that I have that brings me status. And then he says, but I consider that a pile of Manure. The word literally is worse than manure, but I won't say that since this is recorded. It's a pile of manure. I I consider it all a pile of manure compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then he goes on and says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And brothers, that's what I want us every Thursday morning to be doing, to be coming here and saying, I wanna know Christ. And I learned in my life, eventually I learned this, that the life to the full that Christ was offering in John 10, 10 was better than the life to the full that I thought the list I could give the Lord Jesus. And it's 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 the pilgrimage of my whole life to actually believe that. (laughs) I know that the life to the full Christ is offering is much better than the life to the full that I could make In my list to Christ. And the pilgrimage of this life is actually leaning into that, trusting that, believing that. And that's why we're here. So we can look and say, I want to know Christ. Before we read these verses, let me just remind you that these first 18 verses are the prologue. All right. It's the, it's like a movie trailer, frankly. (laughs) Um, John is saying, hey, here's what's going to go on in the gospel of John. And then later on he's gonna, he's gonna unpack some of these things. In the first five verses that we looked at last week, John was really emphasizing the deity of Christ. He wanted his readers to understand that Christ is God. And then beginning in verse six, where we're gonna look through verse 18 today, he wants to show us how Christ who is God entered into the world. So we could really understand that he's not some, um, he's not some spirit who floated around. It's not some idea. No, Christ himself, God himself entered into the world. And the background for this, and we'll look at one of them, the background really for verses one through six, the Old Testament background is Genesis one and two. And, and Barton referenced this that last, last week that there's a lot of creation references in the first five verses. Well, the backgrounds... For the verses we're looking at this morning, verses 6 through 18, is out of Exodus 33 and 34. In fact, any of the Jewish readers who would have been reading this or hearing this would have instantly thought of Exodus 33 and 34. We'll look at that a little bit later. Follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 6 of John chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Amen. Four things I want us to see are the way we divide this up today. for four sections. First of all, verses six through eight, the preparation. As John begins, as John switches from saying, okay, I want you to understand Christ is God. Jesus is God. Now I want you to understand that Jesus as God has entered into the world. He immediately goes to John the Baptist. At first, this could seem like all of a sudden it's like a, it's a, it's like a halt. You could almost imagine sometimes like verses six through eight, if you lifted them out, everything would read just fine. Almost seems like he's He stopped to say something about John the Baptist and then he's back again talking about Christ. Why is he doing this? Because he wants to remind his readers, he wants to remind us that all along, all along God has been preparing for this moment and John the Baptist was the final preparation for this moment. And as as you see in your notes, underneath each of these sections, you have words like witness, believe, light, world, born of God, children of God, all those. Those are those themes or those, those ideas that John in this prologue, the first 18 verses, those are things he's going to unpack in his gospel later on. So we're going to see them kind of uh, um, uh, filled out in bigger ways when we get to other parts of the gospel of John. So we, for an example, in just a few chapters in chapter 3, this idea of being born of God is going to be filled out in greater ways in John chapter 3 when, when Jesus meets with Nicodemus. So that's why those phrases are there so we can begin to get a hold of that. He's, un- he's unpacking these things. Here we are in the movie trailer that, that is these first 18 verses. So he says witness. He talks about John being a witness. That's gonna be a key thing in this, uh, in this gospel. Three times in those verses he says bear witnesses. And what he's trying to point out is that John the Baptist was the final witness, but that the whole Old Testament was bearing witness. That's his point that the whole Old Testament was bearing witness to this moment. Remember, he had, John had both Jewish readers and Greek readers. And for his Jewish readers, he wanted them to understand that this whole, their whole Bibles, for them, their Bibles was just what we have as the Old Testament. The whole thing was pointing to this moment and all wrapped up at the very end with John the Baptist who was bearing witness to these things. John was the final witness. And then this word believe, that they might believe. And you're going to see this over and over again in Scripture. This is important for us to to distinguish, especially in our culture, in our Western culture. When the Bible talks about believe, it's not talking about a thought. It's talking about a a whole, of resting your whole life in something. Uh, For some reason, uh, in the last probably 60, 70, maybe 100 years, in Western culture, belief and action have separated themselves. In in most of the rest of the world, most of the rest of culture, and certainly in the Middle Eastern world, those two things cannot be separated. They cannot be separated. You can't hold the belief and not do anything about it. That just doesn't make sense. But in our culture, that's often allowed. Um, But to believe something, to know something is to give yourself fully to it, to be responsible for it. That's why in the King James Bible, when it talks about, you know, sex between a man and a woman, it says he knew her. <laughs> because again, the idea was there that to, to know her was to, to be responsible for her completely, was, was more than just a belief, more than just, than, than just a thought. So witness, believe in this preparation. John is getting us ready to see Christ. And then the invasion. Verses 9 through 13, we see this invasion of light coming into darkness. And it begins with light. And at this point in the gospel, before in verses uh, 1 through 5, what John was doing was was connecting Jesus, the Word, with the light at creation. Where Jesus says, let there, we're at creation. God, the triune God says, let there be light. And now, what John in his gospel is saying is that this light is Christ and there is a new creation. He's making that connection. That there was, in the Old Testament, at the very beginning, God saying, let there be light to create the created order. And now Jesus is the light who is bringing the new creation, which is his family, which is his sons and daughters. So he's a light for a new creation. And again, this is something that's going to be unpacked later. Some of you know that in the... the, uh, book of John, the gospel of John, that there's seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. He also says, I am the light of the world. So John is going to unpack this even further, this idea that Christ himself is the light, not just who brought the created order into being, but he's the light that brings the new creation into being. And then the world, this word, the world, in the Gospel of John, when he talks about the world, and this is, this is really fascinating, when he, when he talks about uh, the world, when he uses the word the world, he's not just talking about the universe. He's not just talking about everything, you know, that, it, that exists, the planets and all that. What he's talking about specifically is the created order, especially or particularly in its brokenness and evil. So when when John uses the word world, he's talking about the created order and particularly in its its brokenness and its sin and its evil. And why that's fascinating and why I think that's important for us is, for instance, it brings a whole greater meaning to John 3.16, right? Right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. If you define world as God so loved all the planets, all the universe, that's one thing. If like John was thinking, God so loved the world, the created order in its brokenness and sinfulness. He so loved us in our sin, in our mess, that he gave his only begotten son. Has greater meaning. Because it's not just God just generally loving the universe. He's like, no, he's loving us in our sin. Loving us in our, in our mess. And so that's important. The light that's coming into the world. The light of Christ coming into this broken world. And then he goes on. He speaks of what it means to be born of God. Born of God. He's going to unpack that more, but this is important for us to understand his sovereignty in our salvation. I mean, it says it right there. We are born of God not because we decide to be born of God. We are born of God not because it was the will of our moms and dads (laughs) that we be born of God. We are born of God by the will of God. That's how God's children come about. And again, we're just getting a glimpse of it here. Later on in the Gospel of John, he's going to unpack it even further. And then he says children of God. And this has to do with our adoption, our position. What does it mean for us to to be this new creation and and more than just a new creation, for us to actually be His sons and for us to be adopted into the family of God and for that to be our position. That too is gonna get unpacked even further uh, in the Gospel of John. And then that brings us to the real center of the prologue. Verse 14, is the center of the prologue? I thought about this. In fact, uh, as many of you know that Mary Hannah is teaching uh, the women's Bible study on Wednesday night. They're going through the Gospel of John um, and they have a room packed like this full of, of women who are doing that. We were talking about this prologue and both of us thought, uh, man, I, I, I kind of want to take our notes and make it like these, these circles that go out from a center, putting verse 14 in the center and have it go out like that because that's really what John is doing. He's building around this very center, verse 14. But before we get into that, I wanna take us to Exodus 33 and 34 because this is just going to bring a fuller picture to what we're seeing here. So turn in your Bibles to to Exodus chapter 33. Remember in Exodus chapter 32, in Exodus chapter 32, that uh, Moses has gone up to get the Ten Commandments. And uh, it seems like he's taking a little bit too long. And so the people are like, he's taking too long. He's abandoned us. We need to have gods like other gods. So Aaron foolishly says, well, bring me all your gold. And he melts it down. And he fashions it into a golden calf. And they start worshiping it. They start getting involved in pagan worship as they bow down to this golden calf. And Moses comes down from the mountain and he sees this and he, you know, he throws... The, the tablets on the ground. Uh, he's angry. God is angry. God's saying, you know what? I'm not going to dwell. The plan was to dwell in their midst. I'm not going to do that anymore. How could I possibly dwell in the midst of those kind of people? If I dwell in their midst, if I dwell in their midst, I will have to come in my wrath because they are so sinful. And Moses, who is the, 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 uh, until Christ, he's the, the, uh, the, the type of Christ, he is the prototype of what Christ is going to be, what Christ's fulfillment in this. Moses, the priest in that moment, goes to God and says, how can you give up your people? Please don't give up your people. And we pick these things up in verse 30, uh, chapter 33 of Exodus. Moses is interceding for the people. We'll go to verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim my name before you, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, but God said, you cannot see my face, For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses is bold and says, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't. You cannot, you're too sinful, it would destroy you. But I'll, this is what I'll do. I'm gonna put you in the cleft of the rock and I'm gonna pass by and, and when I'm past, you can see the trail, you can see the backside, you can see what's left over, the, 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 where, what my glory leaves, leaves by. But you can't see all of that. Then it goes on, verse one of verse 34, chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets out of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablet, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, and the Lord, as the Lord had commanded him, he took his hand with his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, with that in your head, listen to me read, beginning of verse 14. And the word... Became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's unpack the parallels there because it's amazing. In fact, you see there the quote from Bruce Milne that I love. The greatness of this truth assaults the mind and staggers the imagination, but by that very fact drives us to our knees in worship. The word, logos. So for the Greek, the Greeks reading the, this, they would think of logos as the, the, the prime factor, the, the, very, the very center thought of the universe. That's what they thought the logos was. The logos is, is the philosophy before all philosophies, the, the thought before all thoughts. That's what they thought of logos. The Jews, when they heard the word logos, thought, oh, all of the Torah, all of the law that God has given, and Paul uh, John intentionally uses the word logos to describe Christ so that the Greeks would understand and make this connection what you think is the very center thought of the universe the philosophy of all th- philosophies is not a thought it's not a philosophy it's Jesus Christ and you Jewish believer Jewish readers when you hear this and you think of the Torah do you understand that the word of God that you read is now come as the very proclamation of God in Christ himself. This is the full revelation of God. Jesus Christ is the full revelation of God. It's what Barton talked about last week What Hebrews writes, in past times, the prophets spoke, but now Christ has come. He is the word, the final word. It says the word became flesh. Interesting uh, choice of words here for uh, John because the word in Greek is sarx. It means this. It means the whole of what it means to be human. He doesn't say the word became a man. He doesn't use that. He uses the word that meant flesh. The word took on, the word took on a human body. Now he says the word became flesh. Those of you who attend a second pres every Sunday, grass withers. uh, All men are all men are grass and like flowers of the field. Right, flowers fade. God's word stands forever. We're flesh. We're sarks. So this humanity, this whole of humanity, includes our vulnerability. It includes our frailness. It includes, it includes our weaknesses. So when John says that the word became flesh, he's saying the word the word became what we are in our humanity. Again, stretching our imaginations. And notice too that it says became, not took on or inhabited. This is very important. In the incarnation, Christ didn't take on flesh. He didn't inhabit flesh. In a very mysterious way that blows our minds, he became flesh. Still being fully God, and yet also fully flesh. He was like us in every way except without sin. He knew our weaknesses he, he knows our flesh. It wasn't just his spirit inhabiting a human body or a human body, you know, clothing the spirit of God. He was connected to our flesh. You know that, uh, crisp, that song that we sing at Christmas, the little kids sing, uh, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Well, it's just not true. <laughs> the baby Jesus cried like babies do. Mary probably cried. Joseph probably cried as they sat there on the floor of a barn. Jesus took on flesh. He or became flesh. He didn't just take it on. He became flesh. And what's fascinating about this too is in the original Greek, it's in the aorist tense, which is a completed perfect action. So what it's saying there, what God's word is saying is that this, this, this becoming flesh was a completed in that moment and perfect action and it's done for all times. There's no going back. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, did not, did not become flesh and then after his resurrection, uh, say, okay, good, That was that was a tough 33 years. <laughs> we'll let that go and go back. No, for all of eternity, Christ united himself with us in our vulnerability, in our frailty. There's profound implications because of this. Profound. Two of them that I can think of right away is this. Because Christ is united with us in flesh, in our flesh, in our sarks. Our righteousness is secured at the cross. If, if it were not so, then we could not say that, that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. The only way that our sins, not only were our sins forgiven at the cross, paid for at the cross, but the righteousness of Christ was imputed to those who are believers through the cross. That you, if you are a follower of Christ, you put your faith in Christ, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So that his perfect life, his righteousness secured, is now your righteousness. And the only way that could happen is if he united to, with us in the flesh. That's how it's secured. That's how you can be sure that this, is, that this is real, that this is truth. The other Im- profound implication has to do with our mystical union with Christ. So not only do we have the righteousness of Christ, but you and I are connected to Christ. If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, you're connected to Christ. That's why the, song, the, the, the uh, songwriter can, can write, one with himself I cannot die. My life is hid with Christ on high. That's why Paul could say, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It wasn't just sentiment. It wasn't just theological words. Those are realities through the mystical union we have with Christ. In Colossians, Paul writes, Christ, who is your life. (laughs) How could he say that? Because the mystical union you and I have with Christ It's called a mystical union because, again, it's one of those things that staggers our imagination and stretches our minds to the very limit. But it is a theological, a cosmological truth. It 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 is a truth at the very foundation of the universe that you are united to Christ because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Some of you know that word, dwelt among us is, is the word we get that we have for tabernacle in the Old Testament. The tabernacle where God's presence rested. What John is saying is that Christ tabernacled among us. The, the, the very presence of God came. And as we learn later, we'll learn later in the Gospel of John, that, we, that we're gonna be given the Holy Spirit, that the same Spirit that exists in Jesus Christ now dwells in us, that we are the temple, that we are the tabernacle. It's astounding. We'll take our whole lives to unpack that and still have so much to learn when we get to heaven. What an astounding thing. Well, lastly, my notes are jumping around here. Lastly, the proclamation, the things that we see here in verses 16 through 18. So what has happened because of this? Well, two things we see there. First of all, grace upon grace. This is actually a very difficult phrase to translate. Um, and you'll see the NIV has it a little bit different uh, the uh, uh, ES, than it does in the ESV and also New American Standard. Um, but this is what it's saying. What John is saying is that there is a grace in place of a grace already given. He's not just saying, oh, and Jesus is bringing you more grace upon grace and, you know, all these blessings. He's saying, no, Jesus Christ is a grace in place of a grace that was already given to you. And that's explained in verse 17. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In fact, those words grace and truth are the same words that we see in Exodus 34 when the Lord proclaims his name. Because grace is the same, it's hesed, steadfast love. Truth is translated faithfulness in, in Genesis, excuse me, Exodus 34. So the very thing that was proclaimed by God as he passes by Moses, John is saying Christ is that. He is that proclamation the grace and truth. And it's a grace in place of a grace already already given. You see, what was happening in Exodus 33 and 34 was absolutely amazing. That God in the midst of horrendous sin would say, "I I will forgive my people. I will provide grace for my people. The law will be a grace to them. And now what's being said is John is saying, do you see that was a grace? Now look at this grace. This is a grace in place of that grace. Even greater than that. I love the way John Piper puts it. This contrast is that Moses points to grace, but Jesus performs grace. Moses reports the words of God. Jesus is the word of God. The law mirrors the light of God. Jesus is The light of God. The promise through Moses was grace. The fulfillment in Christ is grace upon grace. Grace in place of a grace already given. That's the proclamation that's being made here. And then it says, made him known. Made him known. Nobody can see God, but Christ has made him known. No one has ever seen God. In the Old Testament, Moses wasn't allowed to see him. Moses could just see the trail of him. In Isaiah, when Isaiah has the opportunity to be in the presence of God, he saw the, remember it says, he saw the the trail of his robe fill the temple. He didn't see God. He saw the bottom of God's robe, as it were. Only the trail of it. But now, because of Christ, the one who is at the right hand of the Father, you and I, Know God, know him. Literally, when it says only God, Jesus at the father's side, it means in the deep inner center of the father, at the very center, inner center of the father is Christ the son. Bruce Milne says this is as if God reached into his very pain and pulled out his heart and sent it to us. It's as if God reached into his inner being, pulled out his heart, and sent it to us in Christ. Through Christ, he has made God known. The word there is the same word that we get for exegesis. (laughs) When you talk about exegeting scripture, Christ is the exegesis of God. I don't know about you, but when I read the Old Testament, look at moments like this with... uh, with Moses, I think, man, I wish I could have I wish I could have been there. What was it like to be Moses? Or Isaiah? In that in Isaiah 6 when the when the glory of God fills the temple and the, the train of the, the train of his robe fills the temple. And Isaiah's there. What was it like when Jeremiah, when God spoke to Jeremiah? Can you imagine maybe even getting to heaven? Some of you have maybe thought this. So I'm going to go talk to this guy. I'm going to go talk to this guy. Maybe you're like, I'm going to go talk to Moses. Moses, what was that like on the mountain? Isaiah, what was that like? When you became undone and, 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 and they took the coal from, from the fire and touched your lips and made you clean. Like, What was that like? Jeremiah, what was it like to receive the word of God? Elijah, what was it like? Elisha, what was it like? Moses, on the mountain, there speaking to God in the the tent of meaning. (laughs) You know what's gonna happen? Moses is gonna ask you, what was it like to know Christ? Because he didn't have that same experience that you have. What was it like to have known God through Christ? To have been able to see him? What was it like to have the Holy Spirit dwell in you? What an astounding thought. On this side of the resurrection, that we get that blessing. A grace upon grace, a grace upon grace in place of a grace already given. Brothers, I want to know Christ. I want that life to the full. And I want to figure out what Christ meant by that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these are deep things. And we know we're just touching on them now. Father, we know that we will unpack them in the weeks ahead as we go through this glorious gospel. Father, I pray that you would help expand our minds to receive these things. We know that we could never receive them except that your Holy Spirit teaches, us to, teaches them to us. So we are reliant upon your revelation. We would ask, Lord, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts to see and understand these things. Like Paul, we do say, I want to know Christ. Father, we want to know what this life to the full is about. And so teach us in the weeks ahead. Take the things that we have studied today and seal them to our hearts. Stir them in our minds. Lord, as we read our Bibles this week, open things up for us through the revelation, through the exegesis of God, through Jesus Christ. We pray these things in the matchless name of the one who is grace upon grace, our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.